If you would, marking your place in 2 Samuel, and in this case, the 15th chapter, I'm also going to direct you to a perhaps familiar passage of Scripture. It's visited usually in times where we are trying to understand why are things going wrong? Why has there been an assault on the church and the things that I'm doing in my home? And there's an answer. The title of today's teaching, which I think has already been recorded, is Pride's Appearance is Indifference. Pride's Appearance is Indifference. And the area that I want you to look at in advance of 2 Samuel chapter 15 would be found in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. This is our answer. Why things seem to always have a nuisancing interruption, interference, something that's always trying to get the better of us when God has the best intentions for us. In chapter 12, the prophet records how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. There's an exclamation mark at the conclusion of that phrase. And this is the Lord identifying the position and place of who we know as Satan before he exalted himself with pride. It's important because we find in scriptures that that usually is always the cause to the effect that has consequences. Somehow, some way, pride has found a place in our hearts and our minds. And as a result, there is for sure a consequence that will happen if we do not put pride under arrest then God will put us under an arrest. What does that mean? It could be the law, but that's not really what I'm suggesting. It's that he will constrain us in his love from doing harm to ourselves and to others if we, if we listen, if we oblige him. But this voice right now that we're hearing is the Spirit of God through Isaiah identifying actually the position that Lucifer, Satan, occupied. He was an archangel, powerful, and he was a worship leader, sweetly penning and voicing the songs of heaven. What in the world was he thinking to want to throw all of that away? And the only answer we have is he wasn't. He had no concern. He only had what we would say, similar to Absalom, is a plan to be like God and to transcend above God. It says, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, 
For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet, verse 15 declares, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? And so it continues to advance, and this is one revelation of him. But if you see in terms of what is going on in our days, as it was in David's days, he messes with people and he creates messes for people. And there's such a cleanup that's necessary when he has advantage of the heart. So where we're going right now with the construct of this title, I think is important. So we're going to go back to Second uh, Samuel right now and find our place. And we'll look more closely at what is uh, in... David's situation and attack that really was authored by Satan and through his son Absalom. Pride's appearance is indifference. Indifference means that in a person's demeanor, they have expressed Three things at least that we can say are on the mark. No interest, no concern, no sympathy. And how does it happen? I'm going to add something that you won't find in its definition, and that is no reverence. There's no fear of God. In fact, when a person does not have a concern about God, and when in fact a person does not have sympathy for the things that touches God's heart. And when there is as well this lack of reverence, you have ultimately the makings of an individual that has drifted far from God. Absalom was identified in the previous teaching as one whose appearance was flawless, and we looked at that. May I correlate and say, that the position that Satan has was flawless. He was perfect in every way, as angels are. He had a choice, and he appeared to have made it. And hence, that's one of the things that I, I want to emphasize again, even in this. It's pride's appearance. It's pride's appearance. And there are things that we can look at that tell us that what we see in ourselves is actually the wardrobe of pride being donned. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were ones who, in regalia, in what we would call spiritual robings, drifted far away from God and actually were not representing the heart of God and could not even recognize the visitation of God 
in Jesus. That tells you how far pride worked in the time of Jesus. So Jesus knows what it's like to be up against the adversary, and especially in this area in which pride has exalted itself and given over somebody else to some other way other than his way. When Absalom has come on the scene, and as we pick it up in chapter 15, there has been about a four-year transaction of time in which where we left off last week, he comes before David upon the negotiation of Joab, and he bows before David, audience that he had sought, and he rises from what appears to be an act of humbling himself, but it says that the king reached out and kissed him. I wouldn't doubt the sentiment, but the point is, is that would have been for him to do. For in the symbolism of the kiss is the act of worship. It's one of the things that when we sing in church, we are declaring our love of the Lord in our life. Some of you may not feel like it. Sometimes we say, that isn't where I'm at right now. And that's precisely why, as an act of worship, to turn to the king when we have humbled ourselves in appearance and to kiss him, which is a devotional act of worship that is rendering your love. It doesn't matter what your heart feels like at the time, what your mind may be arguing, you, arguing with you over. You turn and you kiss the king. You change your attitude about the act of worship and you devote yourself to him. As Rivers has been teaching, the church in Ephesus and Revelation did not turn from all of the things that seem to be more important than loving the Lord and returning to their first love. And that's the, that's the call, really, that God is voicing to our culture today. Turn to me. Turn back for me. I want to have a relationship of love with you once again. And so, because we see in this picture with Absalom the beginnings of an exaltation of himself, we see easily how he fell into what the scriptures would tell us is a conspiracy against the king. Remember, in the best portions of the renderings of David's life, he is a portrayal of the Lord. There are things about him that are revealed as quite human. We're to identify with that as well. Because the Father in heaven, whom sent his Son to us, sees us as his Son, and we say, oh, man, I fall far short of that illustration, Lord. And he knows that. But as we look in these times right now in which there is such an appeal in appearance 
and in a cause. We have to ask yourself, is God into this? Is God into me as much as I once confessed and walked? Or is so much more taking a place and a foothold in me that has really nothing to do with God's plans? Four years right now have passed. We know that he waited two years outside at the time that there was the beginnings of transgression in the family of David. There's at least five years. This is now another four times passing. And this is where we're going to pick it up reading right now in verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Remember, just before this, he had a lot of hair that he was able to swing. And it was pretty impressive in how it looked on him. And he took great pride in having it cut, that it would grow back again. And he had the maidens looking at him, and no flaw could be seen upon him. That's important. We can't see the heart as God can. We only have a description of how he looked. That must be pretty awesome for just a moment in time to be so perfect no flaw can be seen on you. But I found, and I think that you have, time has a way of taking that issue away from most of us. We have a prime time, and then there's no time. I shared on Thursday that I had so many handlers on me I felt almost a celebrity, but I was basically a celebrity in humiliation, a celebrity of humility, because we were all going to be putting on our Zach shirts, and I knew that I hadn't found one to fit me, and yet I was going to be put in a shirt whether I liked it or not. John came after me, and I, I used that illustratively. He was not going to relent said, if this must take place, then let's go behind door number two. So I took off the shirt that I was wearing and slipped on Zach's shirt. And it was very interesting. I was, you know, and John knows this, I really had to resign. Well, he's taller, and I felt he could outrace me if I tried to run from him. But the act in there was less humiliating than it had it taken place in here. But then I put on this shirt... And it's like polyester. So all of a sudden I felt like, hey, I'm feeling really good now. Like Grecian good. Like, you know, I got muscles. So I moved then to being humiliated and then to wrestle with, I think, some pride. But then that wasn't it because then somebody came in and lovingly said, hey, I bought this for you and it's a hat. I'll just tell you about bald guys. There aren't a lot of guys. You know, once we have our hat, that's, it stays in place, okay? There's a time that it'll be removed, and I do remove my hat. But we were on camera, and that was the last thing that I wanted to do was do a hat exchange. But I tossed my hat off, put this other one on, and there you go. My wardrobe, I was dapper, and I was dealing with, you know what? I'm doing a lot better than I thought. So at any rate, the hat went away and the t-shirt came off and then I'm back to my normality, my senses. 
Absalom right now has not yet experienced a humiliation personally to him. And so what we see him doing as being a reactionary to what has happened in the sphere of influence that he has been sensitive towards, his sister, one in particular, perhaps the season in which, not as the eldest son, but as the third eldest, he's got his eye on a position that was never intended by God to be given to him. And we've looked at that before. But you can see that right now he moves from having his hair shorn, maybe greased back a little bit, a little bit of a flip on the back. So maybe he was the first guy that had the mullet. He was in his 80s moment. But we now see that where that has been described about him, he now makes an overt presentation of himself. And a prince was entitled to certain benefits, being the king's son, but he's taking it to a whole new level that we've not seen in Scripture, nor did we ever see it presented in the Scriptures as David's method. It says in this that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. This was never a part of David's routine. He would ride and he would walk. But we never have indication that he ever used a chariot. In fact, God commanded Israel, I do not want you to acquisition to accumulate chariots. I do not want you to be ones who presume that a vehicle such as a chariot is what's going to save you in battle. I don't want the imagery of what it looks like to be in one of those when I'm the one that goes before you and I secure you in battle. I do so with those who blow the trumpet, who sing the songs. I do so when you're outnumbered. I do so. And I do not need an outward appearance of you conveying anything less than your confidence in me in battle. So he's got these runners, and I'm, I mean, that's what their job is. These guys are just going to run before him, and I'm kind of wondering, hey, do we get a horse? He's just got these stout runners while he's in this chariot. And so what you can see here is pride on display. But you can also see that right now he's in the beginning of using this pride to persuade the hearts of people against his father and for the purpose of being able to take the kingdom. We see it in what's revealed. And it's interesting because in four years, David is not necessarily giving us any clue that he saw it coming. And that is one of the things about pride. You do not see it coming until it parades itself in such a way. It's gotten ahead of you. It's gotten ahead of that individual. That's why... The Lord God hates pride, is that it potentially sneaks up on everyone, and the consequence of it is devastating change. Absalom would rise then early in the morning. So he's got his procession, the pageantry. He's being seen. 
I mean, he's on TV and newspaper print daily. And as he would rise early, it says he stands beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom in verse 4 would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. Doesn't that sound very contemporary right now? This always has in scripture the greater implication, not of politics, but of spirituality and conflict with carnality. And that's what we're seeing right now. We have no indication that David would not give audience to anyone. What we have indication of is that Absalom was putting himself between David and the person. And this is what the enemy does. He puts himself between an individual and access to the king. So we're living in times right now in which access to the king is being, if you would, as an obstacle by the things that are political. And we've seen it. We've seen it in the if you would, the protocols for COVID. And if it's not that, it'll be another thing. And it's not the first time that the church has had to have that addressed and what are we going to do? But one of the things that shows even the pride of culture and of politics is when it intrudes and prevents individuals that are on their way to court. This is a court. The sovereign God of the universe presides over a spiritual court. And here's what he wants to do in this court. He wants to dismiss the case based on the blood that he shed, the expression of faith that he has given to us as a gift and belief. This is the best court you could ever come into. You know, we've been to proms, most of us have, and we've dressed up for them. That was kind of a part at one time of a culture thing in school but that court holds nothing to God's court he treats each and every one of us as dignitaries as we come in here even though it may be true that we come in as despicable human beings he said dignified and crossing that threshold with the feet of faith and I'm so glad you came because my intentions are to dismiss the charges against you. Amen. Then we leave. We're not the same. But Absalom is a picture of pride that stands in the way of having God hear you, but most importantly, from you hearing the word of God. Just a picture. So what happens in the lives of individuals who have lived is that they are used as illustrations for a generation yet to be on the mark 
and not to be suckered, seduced, find ineffective and irrelevant. There's a way to take on Satan, but it's not with pitchforks. It's not with guns. It's in prayer. And it's staying wholly devoted to God that when you see yourself by circumstances or, if you would, a conspiracy of what it is you must do based on protocols and it relates to you not long, any longer having access to the king, you need to say, wow, Lord, access to you is what I want, it's what I crave, it's what I need. I need adjudication in my life in which I am able to say I'm forgiven this day and I'm walking out of this place as a clean person. I am not walking out in condemnation. I am not walking out in fear. So just a point of notice right now. Absalom is a picture of one whose heart has been seized by Satan. And it's because David is a picture of the Lord. The Lord never wearies. The Lord never gets old. But David right now is one who still is acknowledged as a man, even in consequence, who has a heart that follows after God. And so Absalom is gaining the favor of those who all of a sudden say, oh, okay, you're a shortcut then to the king. I'll take a shortcut. Tall guy, handsome, a prince. He must have the ear of the king. Certainly the king has given an advocacy for this man, he's the one I'll go to. And that's the other thing you want to remember. Don't take shortcuts to the gang. It never works. And so it was whenever anyone came near, verse 5, to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. What's he doing? He basically is schmoozing those who are garnishing attention upon him. It's a, it's right now a ploy. He's subtly and yet overtly turning the hearts of those who have come to prostrate themselves before him. And that's what he's doing. that he would be put out, or that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, it says in verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. One person at a time, intercepting them before they had audience with the king and giving them in their ears whatever tickled the ear, whatever changed the heart. Promises, promises, promises. But the only promise that you can stand on and the only promise that God wants you to know is in his word. Not the promises of presidents or governors, not the promise of mayors or anyone. It's the promises of God and its audience with the Lord. Because remember, when we again look at this, pride's appearance is indifference. They do not, who have no reverence for God, have true compassion on anyone. 
nor sympathy for anyone, even if it's voiced. Without reverence, it is indifference, and it needs to be understood. It is a lie that many believe in. No government can take the place of God. No man ought to take the place of God. And Absalom is trying to take the place of the picture of God who desires to be accessed by those who are his people. It is a means, it will be a way in which Satan infiltrates politics with certainty and there will be one who is raised up in Revelation. He is known as the Antichrist and he will be the Absalom of those days in which no one will find fault in him. He will be perfection personified carnally and he will handle everything perfectly, deceptively, and ultimately contrary to the heart of God, but also satisfying the revelation and plan of God. He will be known as Antichrist. And Antichrist was a facsimile, a lying facsimile. And so as these men are finding in themselves, hearing exactly what they want to hear. Their hearts are given over to Absalom, and it is very clear right now that he captures the majority of those who are in Israel. It came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. So this isn't identifying the years that have passed. It's very likely giving us an idea of the age right now of Absalom being the third son. Very likely he would be in this age category right now. We know that he has a daughter and several sons. His daughter was beautiful, named after Absalom's sister Tamar. And so he's a guy who right now has kids that are very likely maturing. They would be certainly older than Solomon who's on the scene and we remember right now that we're looking at probably just a little under 12 years remaining in David's kingly authority. So when you look at, it's not 40 years that have passed, perhaps it is reckoning that these are 40 years that Absalom is clocking in. So it would not be unusual at all that if David now is approaching his 60s, that Absalom could be in fact in his very early 40s. And that's a time when men in Scripture, from the time of 30 to up to the time of 50, were prime for what? Ministry, serving. That was the requirement for the Levites. That's why very often the Lord does this important work for the young 20-year-olds up to the time they're 30 of addressing the issues that may get in the way by the time they become 30 and fully charged and activated to serve with zeal and integrity and full of the Spirit. But that was what was set as a protocol for those in ministry. So very likely this is where we see him. But rather than being a minister, he is quite the contrary. And it says this, 
Verse 7, it came to pass about 40 years after Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord for your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Well, when he had left, he left in the urgency of having been discovered that he had committed murder. And when he went to Geshur, that was for two years in hiding, and he was hiding in the homeland of his mother. And she apparently, at some point in time, had been designated as a princess. We don't know. We know that Absalom had been in a position right now that he fled and he was a, basically a criminal. And so it's very unlikely that he had any honorable voicing that he was really wanting to seek God, that he had made a vow to the Lord. What we understand as this verse unfolds is that he had a plan to subvert his father's kingdom and to take it over. David dismisses him, and so he went to Hebron, and Absalom, in verse 10, sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Why would Hebron have been an important area historically? Because that's where David actually had his first reign, was in Hebron. He was there. When Israel had yet to turn their attention and heart towards David, and when they were still highly persuaded by the influence of Saul who had passed away, David had to take a position, and he had to be only moving towards Jerusalem when God had given him the hearts of the people. Abner was used significantly to broker that, and Absalom took advantage right now to go back to the, if you would, the homeland where his father started his ministry of being a king. And so he's going back there actually to wield some political influence. And we see that today. It's, you ask yourself, how could we be so far from justice? How could we have drifted so far from biblical precepts and it's because there's brokering that is going on in the area and arena of politics that is devoid of godliness. It's godlessness. And when there's godlessness, as we've seen, then lawlessness is never put in check. And whatever may be lawless to one group becomes something argued by the other group. And that's the shame of pride within a governmental system when no longer men seek the face of God and the will of the Lord. So Absalom in verse 11, it says, went 200 men with him invited from Jerusalem and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Do you know there's a lot of innocent people right now that are persuaded to go along with the 
cultural flow. This is declaring that they, they really did not understand what they were getting into. David's pulling 200, and it indicates here that they had a prominent position where they were at in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, David looks around, and 200 of them are gone. It doesn't say he looks around, but obviously 200 people that are significant within the city and the reign of David are no longer there. And it would indicate that so sly was Absalom in creating this distraction that it caught everyone by surprise, even those who are declared to be innocent. We had an event that happened in which I am confident a majority, a majority of people caught up into an event in Washington could say, I was innocent. Who would have presumed this was coming? Who would have thought such a thing could happen? And I'm just saying, innocence is no excuse. But ignorance is far more a liability when what God has said in his word is to protect us. And we have people that aren't consulting with the Lord concerning where they should be and what they should do. And these guys obviously thought that Absalom was one who was doing what David had authorized. So you always want to be one who goes to the source of God's word, evaluates what God has said, and careful about what you oblige yourself to do. 200 men, and these are considered close confidants, and if you would, high-standing community members go with Absalom in innocence. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong. For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. I want to just emphasize right now another important character right now, because usually when we talk about such things, there's characters. Ahithophel is David's father-in-law. He is, or he's the grandfather, because this would be in Bathsheba's family. And so you can understand right now that Absalom has played upon the offense that David obviously created through his affair with Bathsheba, and one that seemingly never was able to be settled. Ahithophel, probably at the time when David started in Jerusalem, was a strong advocate, an ally with David, a close counselor, full of wisdom. But in this event, when Absalom raised himself up, Ahithophel made a choice that rather than staying with David who had erred, he would move with Absalom who was a liar. Because it's time for a change. It's time for a change. So David understood that as well. And you know who else understood that as well? Jesus understood when the people stood up and said, it's time for a change. He understood when government said, 
release Barabbas. The parallels are very interesting. God knows with intimate passion the whim of people to change in their convictions towards him and to follow one likened to him. Absalom was likened to David, but flawless before the people. David was one who had a heart that followed after God, but God allowed his flaws to be revealed. And in the revelation of those flaws, when you've got to choose, pick the next flawless individual. That's not an act of faithfulness. If God chose not to allow us to be in his presence because of failures in our life, would any of us be here today to stand before him? Not at all. He has a faithfulness towards us that disregards the failures of us. And we're in this chapter, Absalom is being esteemed in his own eyes, and he has seduced the hearts of the people. This will be, in essence, what is even now beginning to show itself. Culture will be seduced by the next image, the one that seems to be the most impressive, the one that's going to bring the next change, not what's intended to be good, but what to be selfishly employed. That guy's going to get me what I want, everything that I need. And what does God get? He gets another distraction. He gets another influential voice that turns the ears and the hearts of God's people away from him. That's called apostasy. We've talked about that. And apostasy is when we recant from the decision that we made to follow the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength while loving our neighbor as ourselves. Neighbors now become suspicious of one another. You're not wearing your mask. Sorry. Keep back. Six feet, you cross that line. I don't dismiss the fact that those principles may work, but I also see something in it that's far more insidious to me. I never really knew the nurses in the hospital that I was at with Zachary because their protocol required that they would be faceless to me. And I could never read their eyes, but I read their hearts. They loved serving Zach. But I always felt grieved that I never got to see them. But I never felt grieved that they didn't have to wonder about Chris and me. In our room, we were permitted to have a liberty. At least God made an allowance with Zach and I and Christy. They saw the face, I believe, of Jesus through our love for our son and Zach's appreciation for them. And what I'm saying is, when pride takes its place, then it wears a mask. And you need to understand, it's a picture. We can use our masks, and I've still got my hanging in my car, and every place that requires me to wear it, I will wear it. I'm objecting to the smells from it, 
That's my fault. Didn't launder it. Mod pizza is still sticking to it. I probably used it as a napkin. But I do my best to be non-offensive. But in this house, I choose to be overtly reverent and to say, I'd rather get whatever it is I'm to get in this place, in revelation that no one sees a mask on me. I'm not perfect, but I am following God who perfects me, loves me, loves you. And so when we look at this, I think it's important that as this story continues to unfold, we're not going to finish it today, pride's appearance is indifference. And if in any of these things which we looked at, you have no interest any longer in the things of God, you have no concern concerning the people of God. You have no sympathy regarding even our societal obligations and responsibilities, then it may be you need to re-understand what is reverence and what is it to turn and to kiss the king. It's different than taking a seat before the king. It's different than going prostrate before the king. It is literally saying, my heart is for the king. I rise up to kiss him. I walk a different way. I change because he is the one who directs my path. Government wants to, but God wants more so to direct our paths and to make it evident to the world. There's an outcome of hope. It speaks of eternity, and it will speak decisively of the Lord God winning the war against Satan, who, like Absalom, is simply swinging the cultural hair in the face of the godly and saying, what are you going to do about this? Look at how great we are, how good we're doing. And the scriptures here say it was a conspiracy, taking the innocent that had no clue and taking the ancient who knew better, those with wisdom. Even the wise are vulnerable to being taken by the Absaloms of government and of spiritual life.